Welcome to Cure Talks. I'm your host, Justin Dervis. My goal is to bring you closer to the men and women at the forefront of diagnosing, treating, and curing disease. Joining us today by phone from sunny California is Erica Ramos to discuss the role of genetic counselors in modern medicine. Erica, thank you for joining us. Hi, Justin. Thanks. It's nice to talk to you today. A little bit of background. You're currently the president of the National Society of Genetic Counselors. Uh, Can you answer a simple question? What is a genetic counselor? Genetic counselors are healthcare professionals who focus on working with patients who are interested in learning more about their family history and how family history and genetics can influence their risk for disease, um, how healthy they might be, and what things that they can do differently in their healthcare to change or improve their health. That doesn't just include things that we associate with genetic testing, like BRCA1 and 2, the hereditary cancer genes. It can also include other things that run in families like mental illness or high blood pressure or things where we don't necessarily know the genetic causes, but we can work with a family history and a medical history and try to help people put together individualized risks and individualized plans to improve their health. The other thing that we do is not just coming up with ideas about risk, but actually actions that they can do. And we help them with their families. If somebody in the family has a risk for a genetic disease, then everyone in the family has a risk for a genetic disease. By identifying one person in the family who may be at risk for something, we can actually look and maybe identify many more people and who will also benefit from that testing. In some respects, it's responsive. You're diagnosing. Perhaps they already have a disease and you're trying to better understand it. But it sounds like it's also predictive. You're trying to understand what may go wrong and try to respond to it before a problem actually occurs. Absolutely. As the technology has progressed and as we've been able to do more testing uh, at a lower cost, and as we've un- as our understanding of genetics and genomics has really expanded, we've been able to move from diagnostics into predictive or screening types of tests in a lot of different areas. One example that I use a lot is testing for a condition called cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is a relatively common genetic disease that affects about 1 in 2,500 individuals of European descent. It's a recessive disease, which means that both parents need to carry one copy of a mutation or a change in that gene in order for the child to have that condition. We figured out that the gene that causes cystic fibrosis is called CFTR. And we tried to figure out what changes in that gene caused disease and what changes didn't cause disease. And then what we learned was that there were very specific genetic changes that were very common in certain populations. And what that actually led us to was to start something that we call carrier screening. And carrier screening means that we can test people who don't have the disease, but we can figure out if they have the risk to have a child with the disease. That sounds like a very specific example of a disease. Are there situations where you're looking more generally at a person's health? You're looking for a a wide variety of indicators as opposed to a very targeted question you're trying to answer? There are some examples, although in clinical genetics, most of the time we're looking to 
to answer a specific question. Carrier screening is one example where we do look more generally. We know that lots of people are what we call carriers for genetic changes that could cause disease in their children if they happen to have a child with another partner who has the same genetic change or a similar genetic change. What we do in individuals who are considering pregnancy is to offer that genetic testing for anyone who might become pregnant, not just people who have a family history of the disease, for instance. So that's one example where we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily looking at something specifically because of somebody's personal or family history. We're looking because we know that in the general population, these types of things are common enough that we want to offer screening to everybody. In other cases, people are starting to look at doing screening for genetic conditions without necessarily having a family history. So when people pursue uh, what's commonly called at-home genetic testing, that may be because of curiosity. And they may look to get information just generally to look at risk. And I think for a lot of conditions, that's the direction that we're heading in. There's still a little bit of a gap between where we are clinically for those things and what we know clinically for all of those things and what's offered, but I think we're moving pretty well in that direction. I want to swing back to the consumer genetics side of things in a few minutes, but before we get there, I'm trying to picture when a patient normally would encounter a genetic counselor. Are you familiar with the movie Gattaca? Yes, very much. There's a scene very early in the movie where husband and wife are in a clinic, very fancy, modern clinic, and they're planning whether they would tailor their child's genetics or not, go the artificial or the natural route for their patient's genetic makeup. And I think even today, many patients may encounter a genetic counselor in the family planning clinical setting. Are there other situations where genetic counselors are frequently approached for help? Yeah, absolutely. You're definitely right. Planning for a pregnancy is one of the more common areas where genetic counselors do work with patients. Hereditary cancer is by far the biggest area that we're seeing genetic patients and that genetic counselors are working with patients. These are people who either have a personal history of cancer or a very strong family history of cancer where something hereditary is suggested. So either they were diagnosed at a much younger age than average. They had breast cancer at 35 years old, or they have many people in their family with cancer, you know, four generations of women with breast cancer. Those are the types of red flags that we look for when we're assessing a family history. And now there's a great many genetic tests, and we know a lot about many genes that can contribute to hereditary cancer. So that area of genetic counseling has absolutely been booming. When I graduated, I think I I literally had seen one hereditary cancer patient in my training. And when I tell students that now, they laugh at me because usually now that's half of their training. Are there perhaps non-disease-related conditions or aspects that genetic counselors are consulted? Food sensitivities, uh, allergies, mental health conditions? Certainly things like allergies can run in families. There's not typically a lot that we can do 
to talk about risk or testing based on family history. You were saying mental illness, and that's actually a fantastic example of a hereditary condition or hereditary risks for conditions where there's not really genetic testing available, but there's actually been very good evidence that genetic counseling brings a lot of value. Our 2016 president, Janine Austin, so Janine was the president of National Society of Genetic Counselors that year, is a basically specializes in psychiatric genetics at the University of British Columbia. And she's published pretty extensively on using genetic counseling and talking to people about why families develop mental illness and what parts are hereditary and what parts may not be hereditary and really helping people to understand how all those pieces fit together. And there's a lot of value for families in that. You know, when you have a family history of something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, there can be a lot of different emotions tied into that. You know, parents can feel a lot of guilt or shame for passing those conditions on to their children in their eyes. You know, parents can have a lot of questions around, did they do something or not do something during pregnancy or during childhood to impact those conditions? And there's a lot of questions about what parts are environmental and therefore could be under your control and what parts are genetic and may not be. So genetic counseling in that particular case and psychiatric genetics really can help patients tease apart those complicated issues and try to get them to a better place of comfort and understanding with their diagnosis and how they can be in control in certain areas. I want to talk briefly about the history of genetic counseling. I did a little research and was surprised how long ago the term genetic counseling was coined. The earliest reference I could find was in the 50s by a Dr. Sheldon Reed in Minnesota. And then I found further reference in the 60s to a Dr. Melissa Richter of Sarah Lawrence College who kind of first framed genetic counseling as a profession. From what I understand, it's her work that led to the formation of the National Society of Genetic Counselors. Yeah, there was a long history as the National Society of Genetic Counselors sort of started coming together. On that note, what what is the National Society of Genetic Counselors, or NSGC? NSGC is really the leading professional organization for genetic counselors. It's our job to promote the professional interests of genetic counselors. We provide the vast majority of continuing education opportunities that are available. We do a lot of work in advocacy for genetic counseling and genetic counseling issues and really foster education, research, public policy to make sure that people have quality genetic services available. Today, when we struggle to provide women the fair chance they deserve in science and technology, I think you have to applaud the early efforts of women like Sarah Richter and women today like yourself, a young professional that's leading this national group that's, you know, like you mentioned, focused on education. It's impressive and impactful. Yeah, we have a lot of really fantastic members and genetic counselors um, historically has been a our genetic counseling, I should say, has predominantly been a 
a female-dominated profession. We're actively trying to work on that, though. We really welcome more and more men into the profession every year, which is a fantastic thing. You know, our goal as, in a, as a genetic counseling society and all the other genetic counseling societies is really to have a diverse workforce that can help different patients at different times. And, you know, sometimes having somebody in front of you who looks like you is the right way to go. And so we really want to continue to expand not only from our great roots, but then into all of the different areas that are needed as as healthcare and medicine and society grow forward. Do you see a shortage of availability in genetic counselors? Is that a growing industry? Uh, Are there, you know, for anyone that wants to become a genetic counselor, is there growing opportunity? The opportunity is really, really absolutely incredible. (laughs) The genetic counseling profession is actually one of the fastest growing specialty professions in healthcare. And our workforce has more than doubled in the last 10 years. That's probably pretty close to unheard of in most areas of healthcare. NSGC and the other genetic counseling organizations are working all together to make sure that we're able to continue the growth that we're looking for. But we are we do find barriers to genetic counselor access. NSGC actually has a tool available uh, called findageneticcounselor.com. That's a place we refer patients to or physicians to if they aren't sure where to go in their own communities. There are genetic counselors pretty much all over the country. Like with many specialty healthcare positions, they may aggregate towards some of the more, you know, academic medical centers or things like that, but they do tend to be available. And one of the other really great changes that's happening and has happened over the past several years in genetic counseling is that we have an increasing focus on access for telephone-based genetic counseling or video-based genetic counseling. That's enabled people to access genetic counseling services without necessarily traveling a couple, you know, a couple hours to their nearest major medical center or having to take off of work or trying to find somebody to take care of the kids or trying to deal with other reasons why it's challenging to get to an appointment. So those types of changes in the way that we see patients hopefully will help us reach more and more patients that need our help. So there seems to be great growth in the testing that's available. There's growth in the industry and the demand for genetic counseling. You're a young professional, even in the short span of your career, gene sequencing technology has changed dramatically. Has the reduction in cost and increase in speed, has that been a major driver towards this growth? Absolutely. What the changes in technology really are enabling is a different way for us to look at the genetic causes of disease. So the two big things that jump out, the first is in rare disease. Unfortunately, rare disease patients have a long history of what we call the diagnostic odyssey, meaning that they spend years and years and years seeing specialist after specialist and getting imaging and blood work and imaging again and never coming up with a diagnosis. Even when we knew that they most likely had a genetic disease because we're now able to look at the whole exome, which is all the coding pieces of the genome, about one to 2% of the genome, or in many cases, the genome as well, for much, much less expensive than we used to, we can do what I think of as hypothesis-free research or hypothesis-free testing. 
when we tested before, we needed to know what genes to ask for. We needed to say, I think this child has disease A, B, C, or D. And we would test for those genes. And if those were negative, we would look for disease, the genes for diseases, you know, E, F, G, H. That got very time consuming and incredibly expensive. What whole exome and whole genome sequencing has allowed us to do is to actually go in and say, we don't know what this kid has, but here's his genome. Here's our, here are his parents' genomes. What's different enough? And literally, we're to the point now where almost daily we're finding new genes that cause new diseases. The other great thing is that we're seeing all this change in genetics along with this evolution of social media. And social media is allowing researchers and patients and many others to connect on some of these complicated cases in ways that we never have been able to before. So literally, parents will go out and start a Facebook page or they'll tweet out, my child has this gene and this particular physical features. Is there anyone else like this? There are really fantastic national programs like the Undiagnosed Diseases Network and Gene Matcher that will actually help patients and physicians to do that. And we're also getting much faster at it. Dr. Stephen Kingsmore, who's here in my own backyard of San Diego, and his area of expertise and focus is in very rapid genetic sequencing or genomic sequencing in the neonatal intensive care unit. So these are the littlest, sickest kids that we have. He's been able to turn around genomes in 24, 48 hours or less. That's really making an impact on the care of these patients that are really only a couple of days old. So a day or two makes a huge difference. As an engineer, one of the most challenging things that I face and that teams I work with face is solving the problem, not the symptoms. It sounds like these changes allow you to screen a larger part of the population for known issues. For any given person, it allows you to really separate and understand how these symptoms may or may not be related to genetic changes, but then combine that information with uh, many data sets from other patients, from other physicians, and really get to the root of the problem, or in this case, the genetic issue that's causing these symptoms. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. We're taking information from the labs and the sequencing technology and all of the great community efforts that are, are ongoing to try to put all this knowledge in one spot. And then we're really combining that with the insights and the plan of action that can come from genetic counselors. Historically, has patient education been a significant hurdle? Patient education, I think, is always a challenge because often you're trying to educate patients about things when they're dealing with a lot of difficult information. Trying to counsel a woman about hereditary cancer risk when she's got a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer. That's a challenge. You know, that poor woman has a lot of things to think about, and genetic testing may only be a very small part of that. Now, we have a lot of opportunities to provide education to people before any of that happens. Part of that is making sure that there's good awareness of what genetics is, how it can be used for your health, who genetic counselors are, how to contact us, uh, us if, if you need to before any of those things happen. And so a lot of our focus at NSGC 
is not necessarily about individual education for specific diseases or conditions, but really educating patients and consumers about genetic counseling as a whole and what times in their life might they want to get in touch with us. Consumer genetic tests have exploded in popularity in the past two years. I opened up a National Geographic magazine last month and fell out this genealogical genetic test sold by National Geographic, run by another company. But has this popularity of consumer genetics, has that helped raise the baseline knowledge of what genetics is capable of? I hope it has. From my perspective, one of the biggest advantages to -to direct-to-consumer genetic testing, you know, number one is that it helps to take the fear factor out of things. You mentioned Gattaca, which a lot of genetic counselors will kind of cringe at because that's the like, oh, if you're seeing me for prenatal counseling, you want to design the perfect baby. And that's not what I want. You know, a lot of the genetics in popular media and things like that hasn't always been portrayed in the most accurate way, probably a more exciting way, but maybe not the most accurate way. When we have people go out and do something like an ancestry test, that's a good way for them to learn about how genetics is passed on from generation to generation. And the fact that markers in their DNA are really imprints of all of the different places that their ancestors came from. You know, I've been a genetic counselor for a long time, and I was a genetic counselor before I got my ancestry test results. When I did ancestry testing a while back, um, I got my results back and got a result saying that I had a 10% sub-Saharan African background, which completely took me for surprise because my mom is very Norwegian and my dad is Mexican. And so I couldn't really wrap my head around where this 10% African would have come from. Literally just about a year ago, I was talking to my uncle in Mexico and I learned that Acapulco, which is the closest port city to where my family is from, was actually a big port that was a hub for the slave trade. There was a lot of history of slaves escaping and running into the mountains, um, which is where my family happened to live. And he happened to tell me that my great-grandmother, you know, looked African. And that was always the story was that she likely came from that African background. It really opens up great opportunities for people to talk about their family history, talk about where they come from, and really start some of the conversations that could be really important about their health. You know, I think other fun things like traits, lots of the traits that are looked for in some of the direct-to-consumer tests they're not super medical. They, they shouldn't be medical. You know, they're, they're looking at things like, do you like cilantro or not? But that's still interesting to people. Sometimes the idea that your taste buds are actually influenced by your genes isn't something that anyone would actually think about. And so I think starting these conversations, starting to stimulate these ideas that genetics is not a scary thing. Genetics is something that impacts who we are, what we look like, what what we like in our Mexican food. That being said, I think there is a lot of responsibility when it comes to things like some of the raw data analysis that's going on. People may be finding stuff that's not really as validated of information as, as they want to. Or, you know, as, you know, 23andMe just announced offering the testing for three mutations in the BRCA1 and 2 genes, There are a lot of very significant clinical implications around that, and everybody, including the FDA, has exhibited concern 
that this actually could have an adverse effect on people's desire to seek testing in a clinical setting. We really have to balance that enthusiasm and excitement and access to some of these tests with making sure that that information is delivered in a clinically responsible way and that people, again, have that awareness about genetic counseling so that they can make good decisions about when to engage genetic counselors or not. Long-term question, in 10 years, how do you think the field of genetic counseling will have changed? How will it have affected human health? So 10 years in the future, I see genetic counselors pretty much embedded in every area of healthcare. That's because we'll start to see more and more of that value that, that was generated in the example that I gave around mental health and mental illness the value of really sitting down with somebody who can take all of the different components about your health and wellness, including the genetics, and package them up to help you make a plan for better health. Right now, we may see more pockets of genetic counselors. I think we'll be everywhere um, shortly. And I think that we'll be acting much more as a role of guiding other healthcare professionals. There's a lot of start with that already. We're already, uh, as an organization, collaborating with different groups who want to make sure that their organizations and their professionals have good education around genetics. The other thing that I very much hope to see is that we have the ability to bill for our patients and to get recognition um, from payers to see our patients. Currently, one of the biggest barriers to access to genetic counselors is that we are not recognized as providers by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. That basically means that we cannot bill Medicare, Medicaid, or TRICARE for our services. Most independent insurance providers use CMS's Center for Medicare, Medicaid as their guiding principles. If CMS isn't paying for genetic counselors, it's less likely that those groups will as well. So for those not familiar how healthcare billing at a very fundamental level works is you, you go for a visit with a physician, you receive a course of diagnostics and treatments. Each of those is broken down into a billable item, and that information is packaged up and shared between the billing department and an insurer, and then the cost is broken down by code. And if you don't have a code, most insurers, like you said, use the CMS system as a guide for those codes. If you don't have a code, it's unlikely that the insurer is gonna support that course of treatment, in which case you're looking at self-pay. And that can, for many people, become a, a burden that many people aren't willing or are simply unable to take advantage of a technology because of the cost. One of the results is exactly what you said, that sometimes the only way for patients to see a genetic counselor is if they pay out of pocket, the other thing that often happens is that genetic counselors just don't bill for their services. And whatever department they're in, in a hospital or academic medical center, they absorb the cost of genetic counseling. It's really hard to hire more genetic counselors who aren't bringing any, any income into the practice. You can be a really great genetic counselor and have a really great business and a really great clinic. But if you're not bringing any money into the medical center, it's pretty hard to justify that they should be spending more money on new genetic counselors who will not bring anything into the medical center. So genetic testing, genetic counseling is an exciting and growing field. The technology 
is rapidly improving, the testing available is rapidly expanding, the demand for genetic counselors is rising. There are hurdles you're facing. Uh, there's patient education and patient advocacy. There's uh, access in terms of payment. But those sound like things we can tackle. Those sound like issues that can be resolved. Absolutely. You know, this is all the reason why the National Society of Genetic Counselors was formed and the things that you know, we consider strategic imperatives in our day-to-day operations. NSDC's vision is integrating genetics and genomics to improve health for all. And that's the mission. Erica, thank you for taking the time to discuss genetic counseling. I hope that our listeners have learned a bit and have feel inspired to go out and take a look at genetic counseling themselves. And maybe they themselves can take advantage of it. Maybe they have family members or friends that can take advantage of it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And I will say that if people are interested in learning more, um, the National Society of Genetic Counselors has a great website called aboutgeneticcounselors.com. Um, and that's an awesome place to learn more information and try to figure out if what if genetic counseling is right for you or your family. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for joining us at Cure Talks. If you enjoyed this discussion, please provide a review and share among others. We truly appreciate it.